Well, good morning, church. It is good for us to be together on the Lord's Day. And uh, a warm welcome again to you if it's your first time with us this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a series where we are unpacking the book of Acts. And this morning we found ourselves in verse 9. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 8. So I want you to turn with me there in your Bibles. And to all the children in the church, uh, as you have received the, 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 the sheet, the word for the day is amazed or amazement. I couldn't decide between the two. So if you hear a word amazed or amazement, then you can count it in your word counter there. And Benji, the one who was up here, um, you can go and show him afterwards. And I, I'm told he has a treat for you if you can explain to him uh, the sermon. The book of Acts, chapter 8, and verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Uh, they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God called Great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they had believed Philip as he had preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen yet on any of them, but that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that, their spirit, that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in wh on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. This morning, church, we begin with a question. Here's a question for you. Uh, how do we know that faith is true? In other words, how do we know that a, a person's faith is truly saving? Or perhaps to bring it more personally, how do you know that your faith is genuine? The question of the genuineness of the truthfulness of faith 
is a theme that is heavy throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Let me tell you, in the New Testament, just because someone says they have faith, does not free them from their faith being scrutinized. And in many places in the Bible, the Bible says people believed, people appeared to have faith, but then later on, their faith is weighed to have been lacking in its truthfulness. Some examples. In John chapter 2, verse 23, we are told that as Jesus was teaching, many believed in his name. But then, in the very, right then, almost immediately, John tells us that it was because they saw the miracles. And Jesus himself did not trust in their faith because he knew what was in them. Jesus saw their faith and tested it and knew that their faith is not true. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus describes multiple hearts that believe, but their belief is shown to not be lasting. In fact, one of the hearts that received the gospel in Luke chapter 8, it is said that that heart believes for a while, but then the Lord Jesus says that that belief had no root, and those people fall away from the faith soon enough. James, of course, is the one who gave us that very popular phrase. Faith without works is dead. In other words, supposed belief in Christ without the necessary evidence is useless, is lifeless. You can't bank your life on a faith like that. There is perhaps no better example in the book of Acts of this particular principle than what we're seeing here this morning in the case of Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician evidences for us some of the classic signs of a faith that is not true faith. In Simon the Magician, we find someone who was caught up for a time in excitement, but had no true freedom from the bondage of sin. In Simon the Magician, we see someone who was given the external sign of the covenant, water baptism, but not the internal one, which is a regenerated heart. In Simon the Magician, we see someone who had fellowship with the Christian crowd, but not fellowship with the Christian God. And of course, you and I know it is not fellowship with the Christian crowd that saves, not fellowship with Christian people that saves. Christian people are nice, they'll have fellowship with anybody. But rather, it is fellowship with the Christian Savior that saves. Simon's story comes to us in the, middle of, in the midst of a narrative regarding Philip's ministry in Samaria. Philip has brought the gospel in Samaria and there is much joy in the city because of the many miracles and signs that he was performing. But before Luke tells us of any particular conversions or any establishment of a Christian community among the Samaritans, uh, uh, Luke sees it necessary to zone in on the religious experience of one particular person, this Simon the Magician. And you'll notice that that is a bit odd. Uh, Why focus, you might be thinking, on one particular person in Samaria when there were so many people that the gospel impacted in Samaria? Well, Luke doesn't necessarily tell us why he focuses on on Simon, but there are 
some reasons that we can glean from the text. The first one is that Simon the magician was a powerhouse. He was a largely influential religious leader of some sort in Samaria. He was a magician. Uh, The word magician in these times is used for two kinds of people. The kinds of people who use trickery and some kind of tricks to show, to amaze people, make people feel that something supernatural is is happening. And is also used of people who are using demonic powers and using the powers of the occult to actually make certain things that are supernatural happening. To, to happen. We're not told here which one of those two Simon is, but I'm inclined to believe that he is the latter. He is one who uses dark demonic powers to make certain things happen. He is not, as it were, a religious. It is, it is, it is deb- what he's doing is, is, is steeped in some form of occultic dark religion. Second, the second reason why Luke might be focusing on him here is that Simon the magician was a well-known figure throughout the region. Christian history has actually a whole lot of stories about Simon the magician, um, even after this whole event. So Simon must have been so big as a as a as a as a person in the region that even Theophilus might have even heard of him. Even Theophilus, um, Theophilus is the person that Luke is writing the, the, the book of Acts to. Theophilus might have heard of Simon the magician, so hence perhaps why uh, Luke wants to zone in on Simon the magician's experience. But the third reason, and it is, uh, I would argue, the primary reason why we're told about Simon the magician, is that the work, the ministry of Philip in Samaria is contrasted and compared to the ministry of Simon the magician. And in its comparison, we get to understand the impact of the gospel as it arrives in Samaria. I want you to see this comparison of these two, uh, these two men and their ministries. Look at verse 9. Well, actually, I wanna, let me read first from verse 4 to 7, verse 4 to 8, and then look at verses 9 to 11. And I want you to see certain parallels. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered about when preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in the city. Philip, we're told in verse 5, proclaimed what? Work with me now for a moment. I want you to work with me for a moment in your Bibles. What is it that Philip proclaimed in verse 5? The Christ. Okay? Now look at the parallel in verse 9. What is Simon proclaiming? But there was a man, verse 9, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. What is Simon proclaiming? He's proclaiming himself. That's the first. You see, Luke is doing this parallel to to show us that these two ministries are in contrast to each other. Second, in verse 6, we're told that the Samaritan crowds had their attention captive to Philip. It says there, with one accord. 
The crowds paid attention to Philip. They were focusing on what Philip was doing. And it's the same in verse 10. Look at verse 10. They all paid attention to who? To Simon. They were paying attention. In the past, they were paying attention to Simon. Using the very same phraseology that he's using about Philip just a few verses earlier. They, they, they paid so much attention to him. They were so captive to Simon, so captivated by Simon, that they called him the great power of God. He didn't call himself this. It was the crowds were calling him the great power of God. Because they were, they were, their attention was just captive to him. Third, the reason that the crowds paid attention to Philip is what? In verses 6 and 7. What was the reason why they were paying attention to Philip? It's because of the many signs and wonders. Do you see this? It's the many signs and wonders. Because he says there, for, un, because of what was happening, all these unclean spirits and, and all the, 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 these, the paralyzed being uh, healed, because of all of that, the people paid attention uh, to Philip. Well, it's the same reason in verse 11. Look at verse 11. And they paid attention to Simon. They had paid attention to Simon because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So here's Philip coming, proclaiming the Christ, and the crowds are paying attention to him because of the miracles that he is doing. In the same way before, Simon had been proclaiming himself, and, he was, and the crowds were paying attention to him because of his magic. By writing the story this way, Luke wants you to clearly see Simon's work as it were in direct contrast, contrast to the work of the Messiah through Philip. But while their ministries are described as similar, they are worlds apart. While their ministries are described with such similar terms, they are quite worlds apart. Simon's ministry was a ministry of evil forces, a ministry of sorcery. He was entirely an agent of darkness. No one who went to Simon got true life. Anyone who went to Simon was steeped further and further into darkness. In many ways, Simon and Philip can be allegorical for us. Uh, there are many ministries, even in our day, vying for our attention. Yeah? There are many people out there vying for our attention. They might not just be doing some kind of magic tricks or whatever it is, but certainly there are people who claim to be religious, some things vying for our attention. How do you and I know that this is a Simon or a Philip? How do we know that in front of me, with all this, this, this show, all this that's happening, even while I'm doing this, all of this that's in front of me, this movement in front of me, how do I know that this is Simon or this is Philip? Because when Simon, when Simon was doing his things, people were amazed because of his magic. And when Philip was doing his things, people were amazed because of the miracles. So how do you know which is which? How do we tell? The key is in studying not their similarities, but their differences. You see, even in the narrative, as they are both contrasted, they are key, subtle sometimes, but fundamental differences between these two that help you and I know that that in front of me is a Simon or that in front of me is a Philip. 
I want to I want you to notice who did Philip come proclaiming? The Christ. Who did Simon proclaim? Himself. Therein lies the first difference. Therein lies our, the, the, the beginning. Simon and those like him are all about their names. Simon and those like him are all about their greatness. Simon and those like him are all about them being called special gods or being called special men of God. Simon and those like him want you to think that they're above you. You're over here, they're over there. Simon and those like him are all about you looking at them with their gimmicks. But Philip and those like him proclaim to you the Christ. Philip and those like him don't talk about themselves in a sense that once you do look at them, they say, hey, I'm here to tell you about him. Why are you looking at me for him? You remember, and now I'm going to do a spoiler alert here for some. Later on in the book of Acts, there's a time when the apostle Paul walks into a city, him and Barnabas, and they preach at Lystra. And what happens? The men, because of their preaching and the miracles that are done, the men start coming to them and sacrificing. Let's sacrifice to you. And Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes. They make themselves undignified in front of these men. Say, what are you doing? We're just men. But a Simon would never do that. A Simon would want you to think that he's special. A Simon would want you to put on him the quote, a special quote. A Simon would want you to think that, don't touch him. He's, he, he, he walks on an entirely different plane. See, a Simon will come to you and say, touch not God's anointed, referring to themselves. While a Philip will say to you, repent and believe in God's anointed, the Christ. See, this, this, this difference is everything. Far more than just looking at whether somebody's doing miracles or not. Listen to what they're saying. See, sometimes we argue about miracles and we argue about the miracles or not miracles, this gift and that gift. You're missing the point. What is the person saying in front of you? Is he saying, come to these things, for, use these things as a, as, a, as a way to make you believe in Christ? Or is he saying, come to him because he's the guy that God is using to do these things? Subtle difference but worlds apart. Is it about the Christ or is it about the man in front of you and his ministry? There are many Simons out there and I would, and I would, I would actually venture to say that more of what you see out there is probably a Simon. All the running around on chandelier, I mean the things that you see. And you know, even, even sermons become a performance. Right? Like there's a, a, you know, walking up and down the aisle here. Getting sweaty with the towel. Down, up and down the aisle. Because I want you to think much of me. Look at me flexing my preaching muscles. Is that going to help you in any way? Is that going to change you? You're, gonna, you're just going to stand up and say, Amen, look at the man of God. But how has that affected your life? Well, the only way it's affecting your life is that you're giving me a lot of money. And now you don't have money to do your own business the way that you're supposed to be doing your own business because you're so fixated on this man and his greatness. Watch out for the Simons in the world. But here's the second difference. That's the first difference. Here's the second difference. 
What was the result of Philip's ministry in verse 8? Look at verse 8. What was the result of Philip's ministry? There was what in the city? Joy. What is the result of Simon's ministry in verse 11? What is the, what is the result? What is the effect on the people in verse 11? Amazement. Do you see that? The people are amazed. Do you see? These things are worlds apart. Joy. Joy. That comes from the fact that the Messiah has come. That the, that the, that the promises of God are fulfilled. That God in our sin did not lay, leave us aside. But he, he, what He said He would do, He does. And there is joy because of that reality. And then there is amazement because of what I'm seeing in front of me. Worlds apart. There is an amazement. There is a, a fixation on a performance. See, joy comes from knowing the true God. Amazement comes from trickery as a result of a performance that does not change your life. Oh man, we are so easily pleased, like C.S. Lewis said. We want trickery. We want to be amazed. Now listen, hear me clearly. I think there is a time to be amazed. The scripture says that the, the, when, we, when we look at, the, we look at nature... We ought to be amazed at the power of God. There is a time to be amazed. And there is certainly a time to appreciate the talents that God has given people. Uh, for my birthday the other week, my wife took me to a, uh, an orchestra, uh, the Johannesburg Philharmonic Orchestra here at Witz. Oh my goodness. Just the, even the conductor as he was doing his things, you just felt like, you know, the Zulu in me wanted to stand up and shout, but, you know, it's an orchestra, so all the Polish people were looking at me with, you know, Funny, but it's amazing, and there is a time to be amazed, but not here. See, the pulpit is not to amaze you, not here, not, not with, not, not <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Sorry, that was so strong, I had to acknowledge it. <laughs> um, not, not in the pulpit, we're not to be amazed, we're not to come here to church to, for this amazement. We're not to go to, you know, there's like these traveling people with their tents. And we all go there because, well, there's nothing. I mean, in the villages, that's really what happens. There's nothing else happening in town. Yeah, there was the schools were playing on Saturday and Sunday the preacher was preaching. But here on Monday, there's a traveling evangelist. What else is there to do in town? You know, I mean, this is a place where if there's a car accident, everybody comes to watch because there's nothing else happening. So now there's a tent guy coming in with a sweat and his brow and his suit and now we're here to be amazed to be entertained not so that's a simon that's a simon's ministry a ministry of amazement wanting you to be excited by them no the philip come a philip comes to you and says jesus christ says there is life in him jesus christ says you're forgiven your sins can be forgiven it's not very exciting to the crowds, but it's exciting to the sinner who knows their sin. It's not exciting to the masses. It won't get a stadium up and jumping, but it will get that sinner who knows how evil they've been. It will get him jumping because the Christ has come and he's not discriminating. The Christ is saying, you, what you've done, I can cleanse it. You, what have you done? I can cleanse it. Do you want true life? Are you tired of the burden of sin and of the burden of meaninglessness? Come to me. My yoke is easy. See, 
run away from these amazements, run away from the Simons of the world, and, and heed the ministry of a Philip in front of you. Heed the ministry of Philip. And Philip here is proclaiming the Christ. Well, thankfully, in verse 12, we see that people turned. So these two ministries are constra- contrasted, and by God's grace, it seems the large, a large group moved from the one ministry to the second ministry. They moved from the ministry of Philip and heeded the message of the ministry. Sorry, they moved from the ministry of Simon, rather, and, mo- and, and, and heeded the ministry of Philip. Look at verse 12 with me. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing great signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. There was a great move of God, such that many people were freed from Simon's grip and many people, it seems, it appears just even in general in the city, in the city that he's in, they, 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 they turn and they receive the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And then they get baptized. It's a wonderful picture. They, so they heard about this name, this only name that is given to mankind so that their sins may be forgiven. And they called on this name. And as a result, they joyfully went into water baptism, symbolically being joined with the very same Christ that Philip is preaching. Notice that in Jerusalem, throughout time, we were told before by Luke, how many people were added. The first time, the second time, the third time, we keep being told numbers. But here, we're not told the numbers. Here he says nothing about how many people. It doesn't say 300, 1,000, 2,000. His interest is not so much that. What is his interest? His interest appears to be, in verse 12, they were baptized who? Both men and women. His interest now wants to be, not so much how many, but who? The, 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 the width of it. Not so much the quantity, but the width of, the min- of, of how many people came to Christ. You'll notice that even beforehand when we were told about Simon, we were told that who paid attention to Simon? Who were the people that paid attention to Simon? Right there in verse verse 10. Who are the people who paid attention to Simon? The least to the greatest. Do you see that? And now he's... Continuing in that very same vein. It's not just the greatest who were baptized and believed. It was also the least. It's from the least to the greatest. Everyone in the Samaritan city, every category of person was saved. And he continues, oh sorry, every category of person was paying attention to, to Simon. And now he continues, he picks up from that very same theme and he says a similar thing. It is not just the men who were baptized, but it's also the women. Both men and women. He's, he's pushing it in our faces. It's both men and women. It's the least and the greatest. It's the entire society. Everybody. No person is left behind. Do you remember that in the Old Covenant, even as we read this morning, uh, the, old covenant, the sign of the Old Covenant was given to who? We read this morning, even in Joshua. 
The sign of the old covenant, the covenant in, in Abraham and Moses. Who was the sign of the covenant given to? Men. It was circumcision. But now, they've just received water baptism, and it is everyone. The sign of the covenant now goes on everyone, because now the Spirit of God, God is saying that every man and woman is to have their hearts circumcised towards me. Every person, every category of person is to come to me. There is no person that is now excluded from this particular gospel. This gospel doesn't only come to the Jews. This is important. I think one of the reasons why Luke is, 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 is speaking about this is because of this reason. The gospel is not just going to the Jews, but it's also now coming to the Samaritan. And even among the Samaritans, these people who are polluted, the gospel doesn't just come to the creme de la creme among them. It comes even to the lowest. And not just the lowest. Hey, you know those people in the society whose testimony counts for nothing in court? You know those people who bear children? You know those people? Even them. The gospel has come to them. Are you seeing this? Everyone. Everyone. Is now everyone now gets the sign of the covenant on themselves because now the the the, the cover, this this new kingdom this empire that is rising is non-discriminate in that way. Now notice that among those who believed, Simon was among them. Luke says that even he believed and he was baptized. Now certainly we would rejoice in this. God is able to take even the most wicked, the most vile person among us to Himself. God is able to take a Sangoma, turn her, turn him around, and make him Christ-like. God, there's no person, there's no corner. Even a Simon can be turned. In uh, in Second uh, Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-five, Paul says to Timothy talking to him about the people who oppose the message of the gospel, who are being used by Satan to bring in heresies and cause all kinds of divisions in the church. He is saying, Timothy, when you deal with these, pe these people, be kind and gentle to them, because who knows, God might be gracious even to them. After they were used by Satan to, to, to spread and spew all kinds of nonsense around, even to them, God might bring the gospel and they might be changed. So you, Timothy, have a responsibility to be gentle even in how you deal with those people. Do you understand this? Like With regards to everyone, God can save. In, 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 in 1, Timothy chapter, not 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're told to even pray for kings and rulers because even them, in their pursuit of power and corruption and money and all kinds of sensuality, God is able to save even from among them. So certainly we should rejoice in this. We should rejoice. We would rejoice if there wasn't anything else. If this is the story, if it just ended here, that he, Simon himself, believed and was baptized. If it only ended there, we would rejoice over Simon. We would be saying Simon is an example of someone that God has worked in. But unfortunately, there is something in the way that Luke writes here, in what Luke says about Simon even here, that should give us pause before we rejoice over the salvation of Simon. Look at verse 13 again. And even Simon himself believed, and, and, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, 
and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was what? He was amazed. What is it that captivated Simon's attention? Was it Christ? Was it the forgiveness of sins? Was it the kingdom of God or the name of Jesus Christ that has come? Was it the promises of God fulfilled? Was it the joy that comes from the gospel? No. It was the signs and wonders. And Luke even says it in a different way here. This whole time Luke has just been saying signs and wonders, signs and wonders. But now he's saying signs and great miracles. You see, Simon is just amazed at the, the hugeness of these miracles. These things are huge. These are captivating. He is entirely amazed. Do you remember the story of uh, Moses and Pharaoh's magicians? Moses arrives to say, God, to say to Pharaoh, Hey, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, Ha, who are you? <laughs> Why would I pay attention to who are you? And then he throws down the staff, yeah? The, the stick. And what did the stick turn to? A snake. Do you remember that Pharaoh laughed at him and called his magicians? And the magicians did the very same thing. You see this? And then it continues. The first plague comes. The plague of blood on the river Nile. It comes. And he it, and it says, let God's people go. And then Pharaoh calls his magicians. And what do the magicians do? They take a little thing and they replicate water turning into blood. See, so Pharaoh's like, see, there's nothing here. I mean, this, anybody can do this. There's nothing here. Then you fast forward to the gnats in chapter, Exodus chapter 8, where the Pharaoh is looking for a way to not pay, to pay attention to this. There's gnats all over the place. And the magicians come to a point where they say, sorry, we can't do this. And, they, and they're amazed. They say this, this is the finger of God. We cannot replicate this. And from there on out, the magicians are useless. They can't do nothing else. And in fact, later on in chapter 9, when the boils come, even the magicians themselves get the boils to show their utter powerlessness. Whatever it is that Simon here was doing, he is now seeing true power in front of him. And he is amazed. You know, the, the young kids today have a phrase, game recognizes game. <laughs> Meaning that someone who does something recognizes another person who does it. But now, in one sense, Simon is looking at the person who's doing something with way more power than he can. And so he is caught up in that. Whoa, 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 wait, dude, you, what? You can actually make a lame man walk. Take me through the whole process. What the process is? What's the process? What is it? I must say I believe. Okay, I believe. What am I? I must go through some water? Go ahead. Put me in. And then you see there, it says he continued with Philip. He's going around with Philip, not because the gospel has changed his life. Not because the gospel has infiltrated his life and mind such that everything he held dear in the past, he no longer holds dear. There's no change. Instead, he's just gawking. Wow. Hey, hey, Philip, how many, how many, how many, how many miracles do you think you're going to do today? I mean, I, I want to take a nap. I just don't want to miss one. Can you just let me know exactly what time a miracle is going to happen? That's all he's about. He's following him around amazed. The ministry of amazement that he was doing, he's now, he's now taking that, which is, which is the main thing he was after. He's now, he's now the one who is amazed. 
It makes you wonder for a second, like, what, were his, what was he doing? I mean, you and I have read the Bible, right? We've seen lame men in the Bible walking, and we've seen things happening, many things happening. I mean, what Philip is doing is no more extraordinary than what Christ did. I mean, what, what exactly was this guy doing? Was he just doing magic tricks? Was he just doing card things? Like, what exactly was he doing? Why is he so taken? His ministry before was a ministry of amazement, and now himself is amazed. He's attaching himself to Philip for the purpose of this amazement. He is a man after amazement. He is a man after astonishment. He is a man who, who comes and says, thrill me. Take me to the highs. Do something that will completely just leave me in wonder. That's what he is after. Let me warn you against this, dear church. Let me warn you against looking for amazement in spiritual things. Let me warn you against looking for a show in church. Let me warn you against looking for something that will incite you rather than change you. And, you know, there is a way. There is a way to treat preaching this way. You know this? There is a way to treat even good preaching this way, my friends. Hold your place in the book of Acts and come with me for a second to Ezekiel 33. I want to show you something. Ezekiel chapter 33. This is God in Ezekiel here talking to Ezekiel about what's going to happen in his ministry. And I want you to notice what he says about the people as they come to him to hear him. Ezekiel 33, look from verse 30 with me. As for you, son of man, your people talk together, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Now hold, pause right there. What is he saying? He's saying, Ezekiel, the people are going to talk about you as they walk by the walls, as they exist. They're going to talk about you and say, hey, Ezekiel's preaching. Let's go and hear what the word of the Lord says. That's a good thing, right? Let's go hear the prophet of the Lord. Let's go hear the word that comes from the Lord. So far, so good. But hold on. Look at verse 31. And they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Are you seeing this? These people come to Ezekiel to hear the preaching, to hear the word of the Lord, but they already have their commitments in their hearts as to what they'll do and they won't do. And the word of God has nothing to do with that. The word of God is not going to change that. So why are they coming? They come to him because to them he is an entertainer. Do you see that language in verse 32? You are to them like one who sings lustful songs. To them, Ezekiel, as you preach, you're like Mariah Carey. <laughs> to them, as you sing, you're Frank Sinatra. They just love your mannerisms. They love the way you make a point. They, like, they love it when you say the text in its context. 
They love the things, the, the, everything. They're there because it's exciting when you do it. The way you do it, nobody does it like you. But will they hear the content of what you're saying? No, they don't. They have no, re, they have no interest in the content of what you're saying for themselves. They just hear for the show. You're like one who plays well on an instrument. One who plays well on a, on a violin. That's all you are to them. You're just the entertainment for the week. See, it's all about amazement. There is a way to treat even good preaching from the prophet like Ezekiel in this way, in this simony way. It's all about amazement. It's all about the excitement of hearing the preaching. It is not about knowing Jesus Christ and honoring him. Why do you come to church? Why do you listen to sermons? On your CD or on YouTube or on sermon audio, why? Search your heart. Is it because you're just excited by the, the, the corners and, the, and the, the illustrations and, the, you, know, and the, you know, the American voice? Or are you going there to be changed by God so that your life could conform to the image of Jesus Christ? Now there's other ways to do this. There's other ways to seek amazement in spiritual things. It could be about the music. I'm not going to come to church because it's not exciting enough for me, the music. It could be about uh, dressing in your Sunday best. Oh, well, I, mean, I mean, when else am I going to wear this outfit? <laughs> Where else am I going to wear it, you know? I need to, you know, step out, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> be very wary, my friends. Be very wary about amazement, excitement, astonishment in religion. That's not the point. The point is to be changed, to become into the image of Jesus Christ. These are means of grace to change us. God has given us preaching. God has given us songs and hymns, all of these things, so that little by little we're being carved and chipped away into the image of His glorious Son. He has not given them to us so that we can compare them as if we're comparing Mozart to Beethoven. Well, at this point, the way that Luke writes here, we're absolutely not sure about Simon's repentance. And while we're told that he, well, he indeed he believed and was baptized, we're not sure yet that he has left his previous life behind him. Well, in the meantime, that's happening over there with Simon. The apostles in Jerusalem hear about the gospel arriving in Samaria and being accepted in Samaria. And so they send Peter and John to come and fortify the work. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is wondrous news that arrives in Jerusalem, and the apostles go there to go and strengthen the work. And he says, Luke states here that while they uh, had believed they had been baptized in, in water in the name of Christ, they had not uh, received the Holy Spirit. And what follows here is a remarkable occurrence, one that has divided opinion in recent Christian history. It hasn't divided opinion throughout Christian history, but in recent, say the last 150 years or so, Christian opinion has been divided on what this particularly means. 
from this particular text, verse 14 to 17, many doctrines that have caused much harm to the body of Christ have been introduced by people who are not taking the entire context of the book of Acts to account. See, if you're new to heritage, my friend, and you're wondering why is it that we spend so much time reading one verse and the next verse and preaching from the next verse and the next verse, it is, it is precisely because of this. This is one of the reasons. Because if we were to take these verses on their own, we could believe a number of different things. Imagine if you're reading verse 14 and verse 17 on its own, without the context of what came before or what comes after in the book of Acts. Imagine the kinds of things that you could believe. Well, certainly people have believed some of those things. And let me tell you some of them. First, one, one misunderstanding that people have developed a doctrine of is that the Holy Spirit can only fall on someone if an apostle or someone like an apostle lays their hands on them. You see, because you see, the, the apostles went there, the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them. Then the apostles arrived, lay their hands on them, Holy Spirit fell on them. So then someone can build a doctrine, you see? You need someone special. And then of course they introduce themselves. You need someone to come and lay hands on you and the Holy Spirit will fall on you. But is that true? Think with me for a moment. We, you and I have been in the book of Acts, remember? We didn't skip chapter 2. What did we see in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell on them? Did the apostles lay hands on anybody then? No. The apostles themselves had the Spirit fall on them just like everybody else. And we will see this happening again in chapter, in chapter 10 when the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. And there's no apostle laying hands on the, on the Gentiles then. And in fact, the only, apostles who's, the only apostle who's there is shocked in amazement at what is happening. The Holy Spirit is actually falling on these Gentiles. So you and I know that somebody laying your hands on you does not mean, if somebody has not laid their hands on you, does not mean that you don't have the Holy Spirit. Second, there is this idea that people can be saved but not have the Holy Spirit. Have you heard that idea? That you, that you can be saved, you really are a Christian, you've believed in Christ, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. You still need the Holy Spirit. You still need the Holy Spirit to fall on you. In other words, you can believe and be baptized, but you do not have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. While that idea has become popular in the last century, it is entirely against the rest of the New Testament. You, you need to completely close your ears to the rest of the New Testament for you to believe that. And it certainly is against the, the, what the church has believed for over 1,800 years. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul could not be clearer when he explains that all believers are anointed, sealed, and given the spirits in their hearts as a guarantee. He could not be clear on that. If somebody is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have the Holy Spirit. They don't need another experience. He says a similar thing in Ephesians, and he says a similar thing elsewhere. We, we have the Holy Spirit as those who believe in Christ. So then what is going on here? Those are the negative things that people might take from this and they make wrong doctrines. But what exactly then is going on here? Let me tell you what's going on here. What is going on here is a sign. Is a sign. 
The Holy Spirit fell on the Samaritans at the hands of the apostles is the sign of the Samaritan church being incorporated into the same household as the Jews. See, the Jews in chapter 2 had the Holy Spirit fall on them. At least the initial Jewish church had the Holy Spirit fall on them and they spoke in other languages because the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. In the same way, the Lord is showing both to the apostles and to the Samaritans by giving them the very same falling of the Holy Spirit to show them that they have the exact same benefits and they're in the exact same body as the Jewish church. And we are going to see this happening again in chapter 10. Exactly the same thing. Peter arrives among a group of Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They speak in different languages. And then the way that he, he explains that is this. That they have the same benefit that we do. The, 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 you see, this is what's happening here is that the gospel is expanding. And as the gospel reaches a new area, there is a sign that shows God's acceptance of those even unclean people. Because the, remember in the, in the past, there was Gentiles were over there and certainly Samaritans were a bit removed. And now God is saying, no, you're in the same. You're in the same place. Consider this also. Every other person, you and I have been in the book of Acts. Every other person who has gotten saved so far in the Jerusalem church was not told to seek their own Holy Spirit moment. Do you remember that? We saw the Holy Spirit falling the first time in chapter 2. He never fell again. Even though there were 3,000 saved, and then there were 5,000 later on, and many more, we never hear anything again of the Holy Spirit falling on them because they needed Him to. No, He falls once as a sign, proclaiming what it is that's happening. And then from then on, everyone who repents and believes in Christ has access to the same Spirit. As an example, if you think of where when empires in the past expanded, they would hoist a, a standard of the home country saying, this land has now been claimed for our king or our queen. That's what's going on here. It's a sign, a loud sign. And if it is a sign, it is a sign for the, not just the Samaritans, it is a sign primarily for the apostles. We'll see this in a, in a few weeks' time, but let me just tell you, in chapter 11... Verse 17, Peter is talking to the apostles about what just happened with the Gentiles. And this is what he says. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as also to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to, who was I to be able to hinder God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. These are the apostles. And they praised God saying, Then it is true, God has granted the repentance leading to life to the Gentiles also. You see, Peter arrived among a Gentile group. The Holy Spirit fell on them. Then he said, well, I'm not going to hinder God, so I might as well baptize you in water as well. Clearly, God loves you as well. So then, and, then, and then he comes and then he reports, hey man, God, the, Holy, the same Holy Spirit that fell on us fell on them. What was I supposed to do? And then the Gentile, the, the, the apostles sit down and they marvel. They go, wow, God has accepted the Gentiles too. In this case, God has accepted the Samaritans as well. That's all that is happening here. So let me say this to you. If, you're, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you lack no experience. The only question that is to be asked regarding you and your standing in heaven is this. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Do you truly know Him? Do you have fellowship with the Savior? That's it. 
It's not, have you believed? I mean, Benji, we were talking about this on Friday, and Benji was telling me about uh, 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 some prophet who has in his bio, you know how people have in their bios, they have, I was born here, and then I grew up here, and then I studied here. I was saved on this date, what was it, 1996? And then I had the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 2000. (laughs) And then I had another feeling of the Holy Spirit in 2003 on March 14th. Nonsense. You don't need another date. The only date that you can, if you want to write down a date, write down the date that you were baptized. Write down the date when you met the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need to, okay, what else do I need now? What else, what other experience do I need? That is all a nonsense. What's happening here is a sign. And the other thing you need to think about is that the book of Acts is telling us what happened, not telling us what is going to happen. Theologians call this the, description, the, the, the difference between description and prescription. Just because something happened doesn't mean that we should ex- expect to see it happening again. And with this particular psalm, it was always for one time. It's one time here, and then one time here, and then one time there. And then the other people who get saved, they don't get the same thing happening to them. Well then, with that behind... Simon, of course, is watching all of this happening. You know, I mean, we're talking about this big theological issue, but Simon's mind is not on any of the meaning of all of this, right? Simon's completely, the meaning of all of it is lost to him. He's watching some, a group of men coming, laying their hands on people, and then they, the Spirit of God falls on them. So he's like, whoa, this is, I mean, this is spectacular. I mean, Philip, I knew you were... I mean, you are, you, are, you are healing people with lame hands, but what these guys have just done, I mean, i got to have this. Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are still that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's amazement at this physical sign of the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples leaves him wanting to have that power above all of them. He still wants to be this great magician. He still wants to continue in his previous life. His baptism meant nothing to him. The gospel being preached by Philip meant nothing to him. He still wants what he was doing and he wants to do it more. You know, if you, if you're, you can imagine magicians, you know, those who, you know, who just look, do card tricks and, and disappearing acts and things like that. You can imagine them going to see other magicians and wanting to copy that same skill, wanting to do some similar things. You can imagine wanting them to add more tricks to their repertoire, as it were. And so here's what he's doing. He's saying, no, no, I need this trick. This is a great trick. Give it to me. And here's some money. And Peter is absolutely incensed. Peter can't believe his ears. The first thing that Peter says to him in response after he offers to buy the Holy Spirit with money is actually something in English that sounds like profanity, so forgive me. But what he actually says sounds more accurately like this. To hell with you and your money. 
Peter is incensed to destruction you and your money go. He gives the reason for this possible, this, this horrible threat. Because you thought that you could purchase the gift of God with money. The gift of God, the Holy Spirit of God is not a commodity to be traded. The Holy Spirit is not a Bitcoin. The Holy Spirit is not gold or oil. Just depending on what, what the right price you can have Him. And at the right price you can really use Him. You can really use Him to further your ministry. Make your, your magic show even bigger. No. This is God. And He tells Him that He has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Because His heart is not right before God. Simon is not right before God. While he was baptized, while he was called as one who believed, but here he is assessed summarily by Peter the Apostle as one who is not right before God. And more than that, look at verse 23. He says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the fetter, the bond, the chain of iniquity. He's saying that you are still stuck in your sins. You are drowning in your sins. You have not been freed from the power of sin. Peter can see as an apostle that this man is not freed from his previous way of life. He still wants to pursue what he always pursued. A greater and bigger magic show. Is it possible that you're here this morning? Here among believers, but nothing has changed. You're still pursuing your old things. Yes, perhaps you've been baptized. Yes, perhaps you've, you've added now church. You've added now other things to what you're doing. But really, you know that you still pursue your old ways. You're still always who you always have been. Those who know you know you that there's just no difference. You're still this old person. Still enjoy the same things. You're still pursuing what you used to pursue. Don't be fooled unless you are freed, unless there is a change, unless there is a freedom from the, from, the gall, from, the, from the bond of iniquity, you are still stuck in sin. Take this as a warning. If your sin that you used to do is still the sin that you always do and you never change from it, not even a, not even a desire to change, not even a... a, a you know, a fighting with it. It's just there and it is pursued and is loved and is cherished and you are willing to pay money for it. It's very possible that your, your faith, your belief, while you're counted among the, the crowd here, you do not have the true fellowship with the Lord who frees sinners from the bond of iniquity. It is very possible. Now, I'm not talking about a Christian who's struggling with sin. I'm not talking about the daily battle of sin. I'm talking about there's just no change. I'm talking about you're exactly the same creature that you were before you heard of Christ. He who believes in Christ, behold, all things are made new. But the hope that is for you is the same hope that Peter holds out for Simon. Look at verse 22. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Here's the hope. If you repent and come to God, you will find forgiveness. Simon, he says, Peter sees Simon's sin being so huge here that he even adds that clause, if possible. 
Your sin is so massive. What you're trying to do is so despicable. If possible, it might be forgiven. Repent and plead with the Lord. Let me tell you, even if your sin is huge, humongous, if you repent and believe, it will be forgiven. If you repent and come to the God of Philip, you will be forgiven. But what does Simon do? Simon does not repent. Instead, he says this in verse 24. You, no, no, no. Don't tell me to pray. You pray for me. You're the magician. You're the guy who's more special. You're the guy who's closer to God. You pray for me so that whatever you've said about me doesn't happen. Simon treats God as a, at a distance. He does not show here the, a sign of someone who hates their sin, who repents from their sin, crying out to God for help. Instead, he just doesn't want the judgment to happen. And he says, hey Peter, I, I don't really even want to pray. Could you do it for me? And then Luke utterly leaves the story. So what, what, what happened to Simon? What, what happened to Simon after this? We don't know in the scriptures. But Simon is one of the few New, uh, New Testament characters that we have so well attested outside the Bible, not just by Christians, but by non-Christians as well, that it would, be, it would be untrue of me to just leave the story here for you. Here's what we know from history, and this is what is said about him. Justin Martyr writes about him, Tertullian writes about him, Josephus writes about him. These are historical figures who are near the time of Christ. And this is what he said about him. He became a leader of a great cult that caused many problems for Christians. Simon continued in this, and he became a leader of uh, uh, all kinds of problematic things that Christians had to deal with even after this. He did not repent, but rather he continued. May it not be said so of you if you're here. Don't re continue. Repent and believe. There is forgiveness to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, even though we might be a bit discouraged in the story of Simon, we do know that you can change a Simon into a Philip. We do know that you are able to change even the worst among us to become the best among us. You have the power to change us. And so, Lord, we, we ask that this change might be felt and known among us here. That we might not be a people who are after amazement, but that we might have the joy that comes from eternal life. We might be a people who know the Lord and know of his sufferings and fellowship with him. That when we're given an opportunity to pray, we don't ask others to pray for us. We pray ourselves because we know him whom our hearts have believed. I pray this blessing, Lord, on all of us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're now going to proclaim these wonderful truths regarding the gospel of Christ as we sing together, I think one of our favorite hymns as a church, and can